Good morning. My name is Todd, and I am one of the deacons here at Trinity, and I'd like to welcome you to our church, our little chapel on the hill. And if it's your first time visiting, I'd like to thank you for coming. And today we'll be preaching, I'll be preaching from Matthew 4, and we have listening guides in the back that have uh, the, the text in it, as well as the main points and some section for notes. So if anybody would like one of those, just go ahead and raise your hand, and Alex will, will bring you one. Not seeing any takers, we'll, we'll move on. So we, we, we come today preaching the end of chapter 4. So today's passage is, is coming through this book that we started preaching right around Christmas that lays out the genealogy of Matthew and continues through today's passage, which, which is the turning point the end of the declaration of Jesus' public ministry and moving into his actual moving out of his public ministry throughout the land of Galilee and further than that. So today we come to the passage where he begins to do, to call the disciples. And in today's passage, we'll see him call the four. And then we'll also see him confirm that call by performing miracles throughout the land. So we pick up at the tail end of Matthew 4, and we find that John is in prison. Herod has had him imprisoned, and we know that John's whole ministry was really just to proclaim the, the coming of Jesus. And Jesus has come now. So John has to go to prison, and Jesus takes over and begins to preach. And DJ talked about why it was important that he went to this region, why, why Galilee, and uh, DJ mentioned that it was the Assyrian invasion that, that captured that land and, and again began dispersing the Jews from that area and enslaving them. And we also heard that this was to fulfill the prophecy from Isaiah. Isaiah 9 talks about where this person would come from and what he would do. And he would be our wonderful counselor and our mighty king. And we heard Alex talk about a couple weeks ago about the kingdom rule, this kingdom of heaven, what that means to us. It's not a location so much as it is a condition. It's the kingdom, the kingdom of God has entered into the world, and it's, it's sovereign. And today we see that Jesus goes throughout the land, and he, he does these three things. He preaches, he teaches and then he heals. And along the way, he calls people to himself, some for a specific ministry, and some for their, a general call. But he calls us all to repentance and to faith. Today, we'll see the calling of the four, Simon, also known as Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And we'll also see the multiplication effect of the gospel. At the end of chapter four, we'll see that in fact, many disciples have come to faith and Jesus has crowds of followers. And we'll learn that disciples are called to follow, but they followed not because of their ability, but because of Christ's identity. So let's read the passage together. I'll pray, and then we'll get into the text. So Matthew 4, beginning with verse 18. It picks up, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, 
and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and John, Zebedee, and in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Father God, I just thank you for this word from Scripture, and we just pray that you would just open our minds to hear of what you have to say. We just pray that we would just be receptive to the message that your word, which is truth, would just, just be put on our minds, that we may learn uh, from your word. We just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Matthew 4, Jesus' call for repentance and the announcement that the kingdom of heaven is at hand closes the book on John's ministry. John's prophetic ministry of the coming Messiah is at an end, and we see Jesus take it up. And a couple weeks ago, David talked about Jesus fulfilling what the Israelites are not. That he goes out into the wilderness, and he overcomes 40 days, and overcomes Satan and Satan's temptation. And there's a sense in Matthew that there's an ending to the kingdom, one kingdom, and a beginning of the another. And the kingdom of heaven is at hand, signals the change in the truth as we know it. The Messiah has come. God is among his people in a tangible way again. Jesus will preach now until his death about the difficulty in living an earthly life, but also the reality of the promised reward of eternal life. So in verse 18 through 22, we see the calling of the four disciples, and it picks up with with Jesus walking in Galilee. And uh, we know that Jesus was from Galilee, specifically Nazareth, And it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus went home after this time. We also heard last week about how dark a place this is, with all these different cultures kind of coalescing in one place, and this this crossroads of trade and all these other things. It's basically a pagan culture with with these Jews living there as well. And this region was considered vastly inferior from Jerusalem. So the the Jews living in Jerusalem would have considered these people pretty much country folk. So very unsophisticated. It's on the other side of Samaria, so how good can that be, really? And uh, he goes there because this is the best place to, to launch out. And we see another kind of foretelling of how the Gentiles will be grafted in, about how this message is not just for the Jews. We also see that he went there to fulfill prophecy. DJ covered this again last week about the child king, the prince of peace, coming from Galilee. And uh, we see in the different translations that this, that this is Galilee of the Gentiles or the foreigners. He also went there to call the four people into discipleship. And to prove his words are true through the demonstration of power, he goes and he heals all manner of diseases and illnesses. So the Sea of Galilee itself is a freshwater sea. It's it's full of fish. This region is known for its fishing. 
It's referred to in a bunch of different ways in Scripture. We see it in Luke referred to as Gennesaret, and in John 6 as the Sea of Tiberias. And you can say that fishing is probably the main industry. You, you wouldn't come up to someone from this region on the street and be surprised if they said they were fishermen. You'd probably be surprised if they said they were anything other than a fisherman. So it'd be like finding someone from Maine and finding out that they are like a surfing instructor. So it would be different than what you would expect. This town that some of these disciples are from, is, is they're from Bethsaida, which is along the coast. And just to give you an example, this town, Bethsaida, means house of fish. In John 1.44, we see it says, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So we know that Peter and Andrew are from Bethsaida. And this isn't the first time that Jesus has met these guys. So if we turn to John 1.35, we see that John is standing with two of his disciples, and we learn that one of the two is Andrew, Peter's brother, and many think the one not named could be one of the Zebedee brothers. But this, again, is not in Galilee. John 1 takes place someplace else, probably Bethany, east of Jerusalem. But in this, we see, in John 1.35, we see the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, John's disciples. And we read on later in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon Peter, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. So it's pretty clear there was a following there, but not something that was life-changing. So they, they didn't stay with them. They went back to Galilee without Jesus or with Jesus, but separated from him. And this is one of those passages that people will point to and say that there's a contradiction here. So if we look at the text, Matthew doesn't say that this is the first time Jesus meets Simon and Andrew. And we should be cautious about getting bogged down in separating out word-for-word examples in the text. And these are easily reconcilable. We know that authors were writing to different groups for different purposes, and we have three different synoptic gospels. And the synoptic simply means affording a general view of a whole. You can think of this as perspective. So in my career as a law enforcement officer, we see this all the time. Many times we have multiple witnesses to one single event. And if, in fact, all the witnesses said exactly the same thing and wrote all exactly the same um, statements, you would think that there was some collusion there. So again, the, the fact that they're different lends to the credibility more so than that they were copied from each other. So if you look at a non-law enforcement example, you can see that as well. So if you think about football, for example, is anybody thinking about football? I don't know why they would be today. But you think about football. Prior to the Saints-Rams games, this was a much better analogy, but you can see where I'm going with this. Many different cameras from many different angles give you a much different picture of the same event. So if one view doesn't show a player's knee down or pass interference, you wouldn't say it's lying because the other angle does you would acknowledge that it was the same event just from a different perspective 
And we can see this, we can have the same confidence in the Gospels. There are different purposes to different audiences, but they're very complementary. So we see Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Simon, Simon and, and uh, Andrew, and they are fishing. And in verse 19, Christ commands them to follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So this word here, theftoepizo, it's actually two words, it's used 12 times in the New Testament and 10 times has come, twice including this usage, as follow. And it literally means follow or follow behind or come behind. So this call to come behind them is a little bit different from the other rabbis who operated in this time. Most of the time rabbis, almost without exception, since I wasn't there, I can't say emphatically, but probably what rabbis didn't do, we know they didn't go out and get followers. Followers came to them. Usually this was done by reputation. People would come to the rabbis. They would ask them to, follow, to, to study under them, and a rabbi would accept them as a pupil. <coughs> so this is something different in and of itself. Jesus goes out and finds these men and asks them to follow Commands them actually to come behind, and they answer by doing exactly that. And in verse 20, we see that not only did they follow, but they followed immediately. And I just told you that they were with Jesus before, as indicated in John 1, but this time we know from Scripture that they didn't do anything else but follow Jesus. So this is a different call, this is an efficacious call, this is an effectual call. And it simply means, effectual simply means, um, successful in producing a desired or intended result. It's effective. And this should be distinguished from the general call for discipleship that's issued before that where Jesus, as he's preaching, is issuing a call to people to follow him. And many people do. And we get, as we get towards the end of chapter 4, what we'll see is great crowds and multitudes, but those people don't stay with Jesus. In fact, after the discourses, we see many people turn away because Jesus' message is tough. So we see them leave him when they find out what's required. But this, these two, they start to follow it goes on to say, well, they become the nucleus of the disciples, these four. And they follow at a great cost. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship writes, Suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Following Christ means passio passiva, suffering, because we have to suffer. Jesus is the Messiah. He's calling them to leave everything. And the Gospels, thankfully, don't say that they followed perfectly. In fact, quite the opposite. We see not only that they followed imperfectly, but at some point, Peter, one of the nucleus, denies Christ. But they do follow, and they become disciples. And moving on in verse 21, we see that Jesus comes across James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. And he finds them mending the nets, and the two brothers, 
who Jesus will nickname the Sons of Thunder in Mark 3.17, are fishing with their dad, John, who presumably would be known as Thunder, even though Scripture doesn't say that. <laughs> Luke 5.10 records that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were partners with Simon. Mark 1.19 has a parallel passage and adds that in the boat, that they were in the boat with servants, with men working for them. This is an example of costly discipleship by the world standard. These four successful fishermen, a corporation, at least two boats, and lots of servants, and it's a family business. Their dad is in the boat fishing with them. Mark records that James and John left their father and the hired servants and immediately followed. They left everything behind. Their family, their servants, and their, corpor- their partnership. And we can nod our heads to this idea of discipleship costing everything. But the fault is either to agree in principle but not in practice or to suggest that this is a special case just for them. And how, how do you view this call on your life? What are you willing to give up to follow Jesus? Or what have you given up? And the answer for all of us is something or everything. If we look at the numbers, Pew reports that almost one-third of evangelicals attend church out of obligation. And in a country where 70% of the residents claim to be Christian, half of all Americans claim they have never read the Bible. 25% of evangelicals aren't certain that there was a physical resurrection. According to LifeWay Research, 51% of us churchgoers cannot describe what the Great Commission is. And is there something in your life that prevents you from trusting in Christ enough to tell the world about him? To leave everything and follow him? To trust him completely with everything? And how do we apply this passage? We are to simply choose to follow and then follow behind him. The example is not perfectly. The expectation is not perfectly. Because Jesus is perfect. Jesus fulfilled what nobody else could. And that is why we don't have to follow perfectly. But we must follow. It may not cost us everything, but if it did, it would still be worth it. And that was true for the disciples, just and it's just as true today. We don't have more to lose because we're living in 21st century America. In fact, in, in plenty of places, they're giving up far more than we are to follow Christ. William Penn, writing in the preacher's scrapbook, who was an English Quaker who founded Pennsylvania, Penn, Pennsylvania, preached in 1875 that if there were 20 million Christians, and at that time there was actually about 31 million, if each one would bring one person to Christ in a year, and those people would bring one person to Christ in their first year, the whole world would be regenerate in seven years. And I don't want to be oversimplistic about salvation and how that works, but, and I'd like to, we know that salvation is all of God, But I ask you, how many people have you told about Christ this year? 
I certainly don't exclude myself, and I'll admit the question cuts even as I ask it. The answer is not enough. When you consider that 70% of unchurched people have never invited anybody, 70% of unchurched people have not been invited to church, and according to John MacArthur, over 90% of those attending church one or more times a month never share their faith with a stranger, we can see how that would not be answering this call to tell people about Jesus and to follow Jesus. If Jesus is the Messiah, and we believe he is the Messiah, and we believe that people are lost without knowing Christ, and we believe that they would be saved if they did, why do we not act as if we believe that and go out more? They followed immediately, and part of being a disciple is telling the people about our hope. 1 Peter 3, 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I'd also add that it continues with, do this with civility or gentleness and respect. Following in our days looks completely different. Even that word is completely different. What does it mean to follow? Well, Urban Dictionary, when you look up, which is where I get all my definitions from, (laughs) Urban Dictionary for follow says, and social media, especially Twitter, is a subscription of sorts to celebrities, companies, or organizations in order to gain instant access to the thoughts or ideas of said subscription. But when you look at follower, it says, one who doesn't think for themselves. I find it interesting that on the one hand, it's talking about this general, like if you subscribe to somebody, if you follow somebody on Twitter, it's a subscription. So basically, you're just ingesting. They're feeding you. But if you do that and you hit the follow button, then you're one who doesn't think for themselves. So... In our example of social media, five of the top six people with the most followers <coughs> excuse me, are recording artists. Top three, Katy Perry, Justin Bieber, and Barack Obama all have between 104 and 106 million followers. He's the exception to the five. And these numbers change constantly. People stop following as quickly as they start. So that's the example of following from our culture where they abandon that if they don't hear something they agree with. If you think about that, think about what that would have been like for the disciples, because they heard a lot of things that they wouldn't agree with. So what's different about Christ's call to follow? Three requirements. DJ read from this passage. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You can almost sense, like, unfollowing, right? No. Jesus commands them to follow, and they follow. In Matthew 8, 22, he tells a man to let the dead bury the dead because this man asked to wait to follow because he wants to go bury his father. He sends the rich young ruler away sad because he demands everything from the rich young ruler and the rich young ruler 
doesn't want to give up everything to follow Jesus. But the prophecy that's being fulfilled in Isaiah 9 gives us hope. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace, peace of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is also what Christ says about those that follow, which is us. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We are a sheep, he is our shepherd, and this is why we follow. He saves us, he protects us, he loves us, and he died for us. We continue on in verse 23, we see that he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This again is another example of Jesus, the, the structure in Matthew, is, in Matthew is the narrative and then the discourse, but through it all, it's the preaching, the teaching, and the healing. We see the same passage repeated in, in Matthew 9.35, which is a literary, literary tool called an inclusio. So we see this as bookends, and if you read from, from 4.23 to, 9, to 9.35, you'll see that that encompasses Jesus' public ministry in, in, that, in those passages. So this is the beginning of his ministry. You might call it the honeymoon phase. Jesus is teaching. People are following. We read in there that he goes into the synagogues and he preaches there. And he, he goes there finding the Jews where they're most likely to be, in the synagogues looking for hope, because these are people living not only under the cruel reign of Herod, but also under the occupation of the Romans. So they're in the synagogue looking for hope. Jesus comes to give them that hope, although it's not exactly the hope that they're hoping for. It's not an example of a government that's going to be overthrown. And in the middle of it, we see this word, evangelion, which to us is the gospel. He proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. This word, evangelion, good tidings or good news. John Calvin says, the gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only, but it is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates the inner recesses of the heart. And that's the gospel that he brings to the Jews and moving on to the Gentiles. And it means restoration for the Jews. And he confirms this, he confirms this power through this healing. And this is the difference between Jesus and John. It's not just the message, which is the same, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus brings power with it. He brings the ability to cure and heal and in more than one way. The text says they brought him all the sick. And we also see this distinction there between demon possession and seizures. And it's an escalating pyramid of different kinds of illnesses. But this is an important point because we see in contemporary world that 
there's a, people try and draw an equal, an equal situation here. They infer that that's the same because it'd be illogical or irrational to believe in demon possession. So one has to mean the other. We would assume that demon possession is seizures because it's out of control, but in fact, Scripture addresses both of them because they're not the same. Scripture tells us there are people possessed by demons, and it says Jesus drove the demons out of them. In fact, in here it says he cured all manner of illnesses and sicknesses. Verse 24, it says he healed all that were sick. And in verse 25, we see that this wasn't just an isolated incident. This was a far-reaching event. He goes throughout the land to Decapolis, Jerusalem, and Judea, and beyond the Jordan. This is Jesus going to all these different regions and healing everybody that comes to him, or healing every type of disease and sickness coming to him. And if you read the commentaries, it's almost like a test. They bring him harder and harder things to heal. Demon possession, then they bring him seizures, then they bring him paralytics, all these things, and Jesus heals them all. And we see other examples of in Scripture of Jesus healing this man born blind. And that's part of the Jewish connection. Both Scripture and Jewish tradition take sickness as a result from living in a fallen world, but they, it's intertwined with sin. Jesus' miracles dealing with every kind of ailment not only heralded the coming kingdom, but showed that God had pledged himself to deal with sin at the most basic level. And he does this with all authority. Matthew 28 says, and following at the giving of the great commission, Jesus announces, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That that passage explains what's going on here. Jesus is Lord over sin. Later, he'll demonstrate that he's Lord over death as well. When we look at this passage, we see the popularity of Jesus because he is welcome to preach in synagogues, and the result of that preaching is that great crowds follow him. But again, they didn't all stay. He can heal every kind of affliction, and the mark of Jesus' ministry is his words, but backed up by his deeds. He preaches and backs it up with miracles, proving he is the Messiah, Messiah with power. Power over death and sin, and a Messiah that could have conquered Roman armies or every other army in history. But Jesus' power is in his sacrifice humbles himself to come down from heaven and goes to the cross for our sakes. The gospel message is Christ died that you might live. Romans 5 verse 8 says it this way. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Friends, we can trust Christ with our sicknesses, our diseases, our circumstances, our children, our marriages, and every detail of our lives because he has purchased your very lives with his blood. 
And this is the Lord that we follow. His words are life. And I urge you to consider trusting in Christ today. If you haven't. In Christ, there is hope for your life, for every situation, for every illness, for every for everything with your children, for every place that you're doubting, for every place that you're not trusting, Christ is sufficient for all of those. He asks you to surrender all those details, both known and unknown to him, because he is sovereign over them anyway. He trusts you. He asks you to trust him completely and leave every idol behind that's standing in the way between you and him. Let's pray. Lord, I just, I thank you for this example from scripture of these men, these, these examples of earthly men, human men, that follow immediately, Lord, but don't follow perfectly. We just thank you for your example of, of perfection raised up in front of us and recorded in scripture that we might have hope that you've done it all and the only thing we need to do is trust and obey and follow. Let's pray now that as we, as we go and we take part in communion, Lord, that you would just, uh, that these things would come to our minds. We would reflect on them. It's in your son's name, amen.